1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7.
0: It's provocative that the Holy Spirit has, because as you know, I have this view that every detail in the scripture, every letter, every number, every place name, is there by design well, why does the Holy Spirit have these ciphers in the text? Well, no one knows. In other words, the people who don't have the Holy Spirit couldn't care less. It's just a historic oddity, right? Most of the people I know that do have the Holy Spirit aren't interested in this sort of trivia anyway. They're off doing something really more substantive. <laughs> but I'm convinced, personally, that they're signposts because these are encryptions that the CIA's computers can find which I don't think are motivated by the Holy Spirit, okay? And I'm intrigued with this because, as you know from Isaiah chapter 61, when we get there, but I think you know the story, how Christ quotes it but stops at a comma. He dignifies the text by making that relevant. When we study Genesis 22, we notice how the Holy Spirit alters verse 19 in such a way as to fit a certain model. And, of course, in the genealogies, and we'll talk about some tonight, uh, we also see subtleties of design, So what I'm intrigued with is, there are encryptions in the Scripture, and I personally believe that those encryptions may reveal secrets. And uh, from time to time we'll touch on a few things, but my real motive isn't to illuminate some new little clever insight that we can buzz about during the week, but rather challenge you to be on the alert as you read your Scripture, because the Holy Spirit will speak to you through these things. And it's my suggestion to you that it's in this kind of subtlety that you will find answers to such things as Revelation thirteen eighteen. the 666. I don't believe it's geometric, but it may be. It certainly is scriptural. And that's the subject for another evening. I'll leave that with you because we have... Now, that's the trivial part of the evening. We've got more substance to get into, believe it or not. That may surprise some of you. Uh, but I thought I couldn't... I can't be in chapter 7 of Isaiah without, without sharing with you the fact that there is a cipher in the chapter in verse 6. So Tabiel and Ramalia, from a cipher point of view, are synonyms. Gee, I think I made it down to 6 before we wasted all that time, right? Okay, verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand... Neither shall it come to pass. In other words, this plot, even though we get an insight from the cipher into the plot somewhat, uh, it's irrelevant because the Lord says it's not going to make it. Okay? For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. Hey guys, Ephraim's over. You see? Threescore and five years. Sixty-five years. To us, it seems like a long time. To God, it's pretty trivial. and the path of history, is pretty trivial. Ephraim is over. The big question we all wonder, is America over? That's a whole other subject for another evening, but I'll leave that to something that is not certain one way or the other. I'm reminded of Dr., what Dr. Edward Teller said one evening at dinner. I was asking him about survival kinds of issues. He says, Chuck, you've got to understand what an optimist is and what a pessimist is. And, you know, I'm not imitating his very measured Hungarian accent. He says, a pessimist is someone who's right, but he's always right, but doesn't enjoy it. (laughs) And I snickered a little bit, and he says, an optimist is someone who thinks the future is uncertain. And I winced a bit. Then he looked me right in the eye and says, it's our duty to be an optimist, because then we at least try. So that's his comment on our predicament. From a secular view, but I thought colorfully presented. In any case, back to the scripture. Ephraim is going to be over; or is over, as far as God's concerned. Verse nine: And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. So don't sweat Tabeel, guys. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Speaking to the southern kingdom, don't make your alliance in that mess, because it's not going to survive. I could badger this more, but I think we've spent enough time with Romalia and the Northern Kingdom on a plot that didn't succeed. We're really, you and I, are interested in the next, you know, um, six verses. Because they're interesting verses. Very special passage. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above might be just a figure of speech or asking the depth might be a backhanded allusion to Ahaz's dabbling in necromancy or in the height above ask it of heaven what a challenge wouldn't you like God to say hey ask, me, ask for a sign and it can be anything you like from the depth above the height above." is that a challenge wouldn't you love that opportunity don't be misled by this pseudo-piety on the part of Ahaz. He wants no part of this. He's ducking the whole thing. Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. You know, sense from the text it's rather sarcastic. Ahaz is... Uh, I wish I could find a good scholastic way to say it. I just He's a loser. So, <laughs> verse 13. And he, that is the Lord said... Hear now, O house of David. Notice God's ignoring, so to speak, or either honoring or ignoring how everyone phrased it, Ahaz's declination. Okay, Ahaz, nuts to you. I'm going to speak to the house of David. In other words, your descendants. You're in the line of David. I'm going to speak to the whole house of David. You, Ahaz, wouldn't ask for a sign. Let me give you one anyway. Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? See, it's, God is speaking to him, but through Isaiah, obviously. Now, he's wearying Isaiah, because Isaiah's been preaching to him, and he just won't listen. So Isaiah's frustrated. But God is saying through Isaiah, Are you gonna, you can, it's, it's one thing to weary men. Are you going to weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, not a virgin, mistranslation, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, us with God or God with us. Interesting. The word behold, that's always a trigger of a future, obviously a future prophecy. I don't know if there's anyone in here with a Revised Standard Version, but if there is, you have my sympathy. Because they've made a big thing on an error. There are two Hebrew words that can mean virgin. One of them is Alma. Okay? And that's a damsel, a maid a virgin. She's untouched. The other one is Bethula. Both of them mean young maiden. Both of them generally imply a virgin. Alma is one that is mature and ready for marriage but a virgin Bethula is a maiden living with her parents with no marriage apparently impending that's the difference in the words but by the way Bethula now by the way see some of the translators make a big case that well gee the word should you know if it really meant virgin it would have been Bethula not Alma nonsense that's not true the great authorities disagree Loath, Cassinius, Ewald Dilich, Kai, and others. Alma means virgin, but by the way, so does Bethula. The word they said they should be used, but Bethula also can mean a city or a state. Now, are you sure if they'd use Bethula, the the same modernist translators would say, "Well, probably, you know, they'd explain it away some other way." In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, done by Seventy scholars in Alexandria, three centuries, or I should say the third century before Christ was born. Translated this into the Greek, the Parthenos, which clearly in the Greek means a virgin. Now, it's interesting to me to hear all the debate. There's all I think it's quieted down now, but when the RSV came out, this whole thing was a big hot issue. And it's utter nonsense because if we turn to Matthew chapter 1, I think Matthew knows a lot more about the Hebrew than these turkeys that were making the big issue here. In Matthew, verse 18 on, it mentions the the birth of Christ was in this way. You know the story from the Christmas story. Then uh, uh, an angel appears to Matthew. I mean, to uh, Joseph, in verse twenty-one. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall thou shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. Now, when all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." Who is he quoting from? Isaiah. And he doesn't say young maiden. He says a virgin, right? So this whole virgin birth thing should be old news to you and I. But I mention it so we have completeness here. The word is Alma. It means virgin. That's exactly what Isaiah said. But by the way, you don't have to be some profound scholar to understand that because the whole context is one of a dare. Hey, Ahaz, ask for a sign. Something really wild. Something really dramatic. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A young lady is going to have a baby. No kidding no that a virgin shall conceive by the way don't misunderstand me we don't believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God because he's born of a virgin we believe he's born of a virgin because the word says so and we know the word is you would you go it the other way follow me so I'm not going to get hung up on that one either okay this sign is divinely given the Lord volunteers it He didn't even ask for it he was offered to it and he declined no the Lord himself gives it And by the way, the you there, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. The word you is in the plural. This isn't a sign for Ahaz. This is a sign for the house of David. It is miraculous. It is miraculous. Verse 11 implies that. Ask a sign of the Lord. Ask it either in the depth or the height above. It's a miracle we're talking about. Okay. And of course, the whole thing is expressed as a continuation of what? The house of David. See what you can also infer very rationally Is that that virgin will be what? Of the royal line It'll be of the house of David Now the, incidentally this word Alma Is used at least five other times in the Old Testament Genesis 24, 43 Exodus 2, 8 Psalm 68, 25 Song of Solomon uh, chapter 1 verse 3 Proverbs 30, 19 But the point is in each place it's used Clearly from the context it's a virgin So you can check that out if you're inclined to Of course, the word Emmanuel, God with us, is also a declaration of the incarnation of God. Somebody says Jews are looking for a Messiah that he's not. Where does it say that he's supposed to be the Son of God? Right here. It's one of the many places that the Messiah is the Son of God. It's required by verse 14. It's also required when we get in chapter 9. So the, uh, I'm doing a little study on the footprints of the Messiah, a presentation of Jesus Christ entirely from the Old Testament. And clearly, uh, the fact that he is the Son of God is, in fact, not only true, but prophesied as such. Now, where did this whole business start? Genesis, cha- this is the second re- reference to the virgin birth, at least. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 which I'm sure is familiar to you. When God declares war on Satan, he says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And in that phrase starts the the title of Jesus Christ, known as the seed of the woman. That's a phrase we use a lot. It starts here in Genesis 3.15. It's a contradiction in terms. Anybody that's been a first semester student in biology knows the seed is where? In the man. Not only biologically, but also in ling- linguistically, idiomatically. That's the way we speak of the seed, is in the man. The seed of the woman in that phrase is already hinted. The virgin birth. By the way, there's two seeds mentioned here. There's two seeds mentioned here. Seed of the serpent. There's also going to be an incarnation of sorts, by an imposter, the coming world leader, the most dramatic guy the world has ever seen. It's going to be Satan's grandstand play. Can he deceive? Wow. He's the master of it. Angel of light, powerful, intelligent, resourceful, and he's got a man of the hour in waiting coming world. He is going to be accepted by Israel as the Messiah. Jesus in John 5.43 says, I have come in my father's name and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. This guy is going to be Jewish. He's going to be accepted as the Messiah of Israel. Interesting situation. Why was Jesus Christ born of a virgin? We see it prophesied in Genesis 3.15, at least hinted at. In Isaiah 7.14, we hear it mentioned again. It's kind of interesting. The first point is is that the God's Redeemer of you and I, first of all, had to be a kinsman. One of the things we learn from our study of the Scripture is that the role, the mission, the destiny of Jesus Christ was to be our kinsman Redeemer. Not an angel, not some other kind of created being, but a kinsman. There's a concept in the Hebrew called a goel, a kinsman redeemer. We see that perhaps best typified in the four, little four-chapter book called Ruth. Ruth is a Gentile joined emotionally and committed to Naomi, who comes back to Bethlehem to redeem, as a destitute because of the history there. And uh, the two of them come back, and they fall into the graces of a landowner by the name of Boaz. turns out Boaz is a kinsman of Naomi. And the whole plot line of Ruth involves him performing the kinsman's part, which has at least two aspects. One aspect is to redeem the land to Naomi. It had been forfeit, and he, by being a kinsman, can redeem land. We learn a lot about land transfer that way, land. You and I, what they call a sale, you and I would call it a lease, You didn't buy land in Israel. It was tied to genealogy. It was tied to land grants to the tribes. But if you're in trouble and you sold your land, there were mechanisms by which it could come back to the family. The jubilee year it would automatically, and because of that, you could only sell it for so much if the jubilee year was coming because it was going to be forfeit then back to the family. But the other way you did it was with a title deed situation where a a member of the family could redeem the land back from the person that you, in effect, what you and I would say, leased it to. Didn't have didn't have fee simple concept in those days. It's a little different issue. And, of course, Boaz does that, redeems the land to Naomi. Naomi is a type of Israel. Boaz is a goel, a kinsman redeemer. But he also does something else at the same time. He takes a Gentile bride to wife. And that, of course, interests us prophetically because it certainly lays out the whole model of what God is doing, lays out his plan. And I encourage you, if you have never studied or if you need to review the book of Ruth, I encourage you to do that for a little four-chapter book. It's fabulous study of many, many many things will emerge out of it. But the point is the role of the kinsman redeemer is is very, very visible there. And that becomes meaningful to us. In fact, I don't think you can understand Revelation chapter 5 until you understand the book of Ruth. One reason the book of Revelation is such a rewarding study is you you study it properly. It will take you to every book of the Bible because it's in code. Every code is is, uh, encrypted for you, so to speak, or revealed to you somewhere else in the Old or New Testament. There are 357 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. If it seems strange to you, it's only because you haven't got a command of the Old Testament. To the extent you're comfortable in the Old Testament, to that extent, Revelation starts to unravel for you. But you can't understand Revelation 5. God is in heaven. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne is a book written within it, on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Titled to the earth. Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? No man was found in heaven that was worthy to look upon it or to open the seals and that's that's bad news John understood it it says he sobbed convulsively because no man was found one of the elders said weep not behold the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof how could the lion of the tribe of Judah he's a man he turned and looked and what do you see a lion no he saw a lamb as it had been slain Pictures, of course, the idioms, of course, speak of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist first introduces him publicly, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What a Jewish title. Meaningless to a Gentile, Lamb of God, what are you talking about? Jew understood, Passover lamb. That's Christ's mission. Now, it's kind of interesting. Um, So Jesus is in the position in Revelation 5 of being our kinsman redeemer. He's paid the price. He hasn't taken possession He's paid the bill in advance, but he's now going to take possession. In the the book of Revelation, Revelation 6 through 19 is the trauma on the earth as he takes possession of that which he paid for. Heavy stuff. Let me go at this another way. You know, I mentioned to you many times that obviously the concept of the kinsman redeemer is very important to understand. The more you understand it, and it's more complicated than I'm summarizing here briefly, but I encourage you to study it carefully, the concept of the kinsman redeemer, the goel, in the Hebrew. As we go in the, throughout the Old Testament, it's my encouragement to you to realize that everything in the Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. Every detail, every number, some obscure, maybe, yes, but they all are there for one purpose. Jesus said so in Psalm 40. The volume of the book is written of me. That's what he says. And you can find there's probably seven or eight, a dozen verses say the same thing. This, you know, that this the... Uh, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy and so on out of Revelation and the rest now the question is okay when you come across something like a city of refuge you know you remember that uh, Moses was instructed that when you enter the Canaan and you conquer the land one of the things I want you to do is after you allocate it so forth, I want you to allocate six cities three uh, west of the Jordan three east of the Jordan as cities of refuge and you go through the Torah and you discover what a city of refuge was was an, a, an approach to second degree murder And the idea was if you ended up killing somebody accidentally, or in a non-premeditated way, you were in trouble because the avenger of blood, his next of kin, would be coming after you. That was the old way. You, 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 You did something that caused this guy to die in the field, you knew that his relatives would be after you. So what did you do? Well, first of all, if it's premeditated murder, hey, you're in trouble. No, there's no recourse. But if it was non-premeditated, there was a very interesting procedure ordained in the Torah. What you did is you ran like crazy to a city of refuge. There were three, and, they, and when and and Moses instructed all this, and when Joshua enters the land, it's one of the things in the book of Joshua they lay out, the six cities of refuge. When you get to the city of refuge, the avenger of blood could not touch you there. And this is all presuming you could convince the city fathers that it was non-premeditated. And they would let you stay there, and as long as you were in the city of refuge, you were safe. If you left, you and the avenger of bloods waiting at the gate, you're in trouble. Until the high priest died. Whenever the high priest died, then you were free, and the avenger of blood couldn't touch you anywhere. Get the picture? Well, it's kind of a quaint procedure, right? But it's the old ways. You say, well, that's just some of the old ancient traditions. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. Got a couple of questions for you was this crucifixion of Jesus Christ premeditated or was it second degree from our point of view yours and mine well there's an argument that says it's not premeditated because Jesus said Father forgive them for they know not what they do so it would fall into the category of eligibility to a city of refuge right so what's our refuge who's our city of refuge Jesus Christ For how long? Till the high priest died. Who's our high priest? You have to think like a rabbi. But do you get the picture? Interesting. And you can go on like this. But let me tell you the flip side. We've all studied the kinsman redeemer, right? We've had some exposure to that. The city of refuge protects us from whom? The avenger of blood. Question. Who is the avenger of blood? The kinsman redeemer of the guy you killed. Jesus Christ has two roles. To you and I, if we're saved and and, and abide in him, he is our kinsman redeemer. He is opening the seven-sealed book to take possession. Our name is written in the book of life. Praise God, we're taken care of. But let me tell you the other side of the coin. He's also the avenger of blood. And Isaiah is going to deal with that. And when Jesus Christ starts his ministry, he quotes in Luke 4. He asked for the book of Isaiah. And we get to chapter 61. We'll look carefully at what he read. And we'll notice most of all what he skipped. Because it wasn't time yet. And that's the role when he has the avenger of blood. He's coming back in a way that's going to surprise a lot of people. Okay. It's this virgin birth thing. A couple of other things i like to mention. We talked about the virgin birth idea starting in Genesis 3. Where does it end, in a sense? And the concluding link, if you will, would be Revelation 12. So we might just review briefly Revelation chapter 12, which is a, um, a very key chapter in the book of Revelation. Some people say it's the most difficult. That's silly because it's very straightforward. In Revelation chapter 12, John says, and there appeared another wonder in heaven: a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, traveling at birth, in birth and pain to be delivered. And when we get down to verse five, she brought forth a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child is caught up to God in His throne. The question is, who's the woman? Many commentators you pick up say, well, the woman's the church. That's nonsense. I love the way Chuck Smith puts it: if this if the woman's the church, she's in deep trouble because she's pregnant. and the church is the virgin bride right no this woman is identified for us in the scripture very clearly because when you get to Genesis 37 I believe it is anyway where where uh, Joseph has his dreams Jacob himself interprets it for us the sun moon and 12 stars is an idiom from the book of Genesis on the nation Israel so this woman that's clothed with the sun and the moon and her feet and, the, and on her uh, uh, head a crown of 12 stars is a idiom, an uh, Old Testament idiom for the 12 tribes. This woman is Israel, but in a very peculiar sense. She's Israel in the sense that it started with Eve. The seed that she is bearing is the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, the Redeemer.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.